It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So hi, everyone, and welcome back to Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you. Today, we have a really exciting guest. Richard Hanania is uh, a, a postdoctoral researcher at Columbia University's Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies. So he studies international affairs, war, and peace. He received his PhD from UCLA in political science, where his dissertation focused on how moral psychology relates to the support of war. So pretty interesting and relevant stuff for our days. He's a prolific writer and researcher and has written on topics ranging from nuclear policy to the psychological differences between elites and the general public, which I'm definitely looking forward to getting into, and to whether or not liberal governments are actually as cooperative as its proponents claim that they are. He's given talks all over the country on American grand strategy. He's talked about the intersection of domestic politics with foreign policy and a lot more. And of course, as always, we're going to have links to his research on the show notes at reconsideredmedia.com so you can dig into your heart's content. He's also currently working on a book called Rational Individuals, Irrational States, The Illusion of American Grand Strategy. So Richard Hanania, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. One of the reasons I was excited for this talk was that, or this conversation was that I also studied political science and I got my master's in it, but we definitely, the, the school I, the, the sort of school of thought I come from, heavy on the realist side, heavy on modeling states as rational, definitely always felt a little, a little strange. Although, of course, like once you're in the academic bubble, you just like, you just absorb that, like, ah, yes, the state is rational. It acts as one. Right. And and it's just a it's just like a little node. It's like it's kind of like how physicists take everything to model it and like turn it into, a, you know, a single map, you know, a single dimensionless point. Right. In order right. to keep things simple. And it became clear to me as I was writing my own thesis that, you know, that that it didn't always work. And there were all these, these outliers. And it was just like, oh, just get rid of the outliers. And I was thinking, you can't get rid of the outliers like. 30,000 people died, right? And, and it felt like one of those places that, that it, it needed a little bit more peeling into. And uh, so I've, I've now got your book on the way. So I, I can't say that I've read it yet, but, but I will at some point. But, but before we get into this, so that, that, was my, that was my fanboy moment. So I'm excited about this. Um, and before we get in the meat of it, you know, before you went to UCLA for a PhD in political science, you graduated from law school at the University of Chicago. And so I actually, I also made the jump from uh, actually mechanical engineering to political science, which is his own wacky Mm -hmm. story. But what made you decide 
to go from law school to poli sci? <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's uh, it's not as you know romantic as you might think. It, it, it was. I basically went to law school. Uh, I was just I graduated from college. I didn't really know what to do, and I went to law school, which is what a lot of people do. Uh, so I went to the University of Chicago. I said, you know, that's a, that's a good law school. I could get a decent job, and you know, I really don't know what else what else to do. Uh, once I got to Chicago, though, uh, it was a really great experience. It was I never went to like an elite high school or an elite college. You know, I went to a state school, University of Colorado. It wasn't really a good or or uh, very focused student in high school, so I never took like AP classes or anything. And so when I went to the University of Chicago Law School, that was the first time I really was around people who were more intellectual, more interested in the world of ideas. Uh, and they, they're really heavy on that stuff, the law and economic stuff in the curriculum, even more so than other elite law schools. Uh, so I studied that and I, I, I really I really liked it. I, I really liked, I mean, I was always reading books. I was always sort of on my own, uh, had intellectual interests. But then I, I sort of, when I went to Chicago, I started seeing that it was possible to do that as, as a career. Uh, so... I went. I never actually practiced law, so I finished law school in 2013. Uh, I went straight into UCLA and got my PhD there. Uh, but it was really just a, uh, <laughs> really just it was just a case of somebody taking a really long time to figure out what they uh, figure out what they wanted to do with their life. Yeah, I think I think I can relate to that. Mm. So this book that you're working on, I, I want to dig into that topic because when we chatted uh, last week, one of the issues that came up that we definitely want to hit is the idea of agency and to what degree do individuals in these big, quote unquote, deterministic state institutions actually have the ability to make decisions and impact outcomes. And uh, just for the benefit of, of our readers, that that book, again, is called uh, Rational. Yeah, that's not going to have right. So the book is actually not not published yet. So it's, it's uh, let's, let's, not, let's not have people go to Amazon. Try Did to I buy the wrong book? Oh boy. Okay. Well, <laughs> my book. It's not. It's not. For I was like, I was a couple glasses of wine in. I was like, this is so exciting. So uh, I'll be reading someone else's book. That's very exciting. <laughs> for for the first year that we did this podcast, Eric knew that I was in a metal band when I was younger, oh, and gosh. he. He he talked about how much he liked my band on one of the episodes, and then he referenced a band that I had never heard of. And it turns out he had been listening to the wrong band this for like half yeah, a year. Yeah, this is not the first time this has happened. <laughs> we got we caught this one fast, at least. Thank you. Jeez. Yeah, I was gonna be like, I was gonna be like eight chapters into it, be like, Richard, this what is this is so different from what I thought it would be. <laughs> Do you know what book you bought? Uh, I'll look it up later. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's funny yeah you're clearly not the only person talking about you know like rational like questioning rational decision making in the space um uh but so uh yeah i'll send you later whoever is your uh whoever whoever picked a suspiciously similar name to yours yeah so, so go ahead i mean no i mean on that point yeah i mean i i, I agree with you completely so Every field sort of needs to justify itself. So if, you know, you take economics, they start with a rational individual and then they sort of build from there. Uh, mathematics, physics, every field sort of needs to justify itself. If you're studying uh, American politics, you know, behavior of voters within political science, it's also pretty easy where you start. You start with the individual voter. You might look at their interests. You might look at their psychology, psychology, another field where you would just, you know, look at the individual. So there's a natural place to start. So international relations needs a way to be able to say, we're our own field. We're not economics. We're not just political science. You know, we're not just human psychology. There has to be something about special about states and the way they interact with one another. 
So if you take that away, it's sort of a crisis for the field, right? Because then you're just saying, well, it's just politics, right? It's just like, like, why does Trump do this with Iran? It's, it's like studying why Trump decides, you know, he wants to go for a tax cut or whatever, right? There's nothing special that sets international relations apart. So I, I feel like there is something that makes international relations different, but it can be exaggerated because the way we look at state behavior as far as the unitary actor model where a state will behave in sort of a rational way that makes sense to achieve goals. That's not the way that most people studying American politics see things, right? They look at politics as uh, a combination of ideology and sort of short-term political considerations and institutional constraints. And I think that although there is something different about international relations, some people have tried to justify why international relations is different. In my inclination is to believe it's closer to the rest of domestic politics. Mm. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's it's interesting that it's it, you, I've I've never as you say that I've never questioned why international relations feel so different from domestic politics. Again, always just kind of assumed that was true. Was really interested in it and and picked up that assumption as I went along. And I think you know maybe the and and I got to be careful not to turn this into kind of a, a wonk shop talking episode, but. I think maybe if if I had to defend it, which of course part of my gut does, because I was like, I spent so much time doing this, but if I had to defend it, there's this sense I have that, you know, fundamental security for a state feels like one of those things that that is so much more overriding than you know, than even economics or or healthcare or something else like that. And that there's this there is something about your security that that pushes you into situations you might not otherwise get into. Like, why are India and Pakistan always enemies? Because they, they you know, mutually threaten each other's security. And can they ever get along? Maybe not. Or, or like, can that ever go away? Can they ever just decide that they won't, you know, mutually threaten each other in fundamental ways? Maybe not. Where, of course, you know, if you look at, uh, if you look at India and, you know, probably a similarly militarily powerful state Norway, uh, they will never threaten each other's security, or at least unless something radically changes about their, you know, positioning on the ocean. And so they have all this space to be friends. And so I guess one of the things I'm wondering is, is, you know, of course, the way I studied it, you know, there are always these exceptions to security, because you'd go, oh, well, maybe this is just a, you know, war of distraction to win an election or something like that. So yeah, yeah, yeah there's exceptions. But there are these security concerns that are forcing states into positions where they're much more likely to be in conflict. I'm wondering how you how how does that resonate with you? Yeah, Eric, you're doing a, a good thing, a healthy thing where you're trying to sort of steel man the opponent's argument, right? So you, you were saying <laughs> if we were going to accept the rational actor model, what's the best case for it? And I think that, that, you know, there's, there's, there's something there with security is fundamental. It can override a lot. That's true. Uh, some people have looked at, um, the American system and how decisions get made. So spending policy is goes through Congress and then the president by himself makes foreign policy, not literally just by himself, but right. you know, he sets the general direction of foreign policy. So you could sort of, uh, you could sort of, uh, the rational actor model is close enough to reality where we can use it. Uh, I think that. In, whether you want to take the unitary actor model or what we can call maybe the normal politics model uh, of state behavior, I think it's going to vary by situation. So if you look at what was going on in World War I and World War II, 
right? You could say that there's a, certainly a state purpose. They're, uh, they're have, they're direct, the U.S. government is directing industry, build, build planes, build ships. You know, they're having a draft. Everything is not perfectly, but everything is sort of working towards the same goal, right? Defeat Japan, defeat, defeat Nazi Germany. And so that's one end of the spectrum. Or you could have a, a country where you have one absolute dictator, you know, Stalinist Russia, and he's making all these decisions and he's just one guy. So one guy can have a strategy. That's, that's easy to believe. Mm. Uh, but then you have, I, I would say there's this other end of the spectrum. You have some governments that are just weak, that are just fighting with each other, that don't, uh, mm. you know, they're working at cross purposes. You know, the, uh, you know, something like uh, the Pakistani government, as some people say, is sort of like this, where the intelligence agencies are doing one thing and the civilian government is doing another thing and the military is doing another thing. And then you also have the United States. And, you know, this is the most I focus on mostly on American foreign policy. And I would argue we're in the realm where our wars are generally wars of choice. Yeah, uh, they don't really determine our fundamental security. Look, the U.S. couldn't the U.S. fought and lost, lost 50,000 in Vietnam. We left there. South Vietnam fell, and did it hurt American security in any way? I mean, it's, it's hard to it's hard to see how it did. It was terrible for the people we left behind, but it didn't really hurt American security. Right. Same thing. We're going to say the same thing about the Afghanistan war when it's over. You know, there was sort of a uh, a groundswell to go take out the Taliban after September 11th. But we've been there for 20 years now. Really, we've lost. We've sort of lost the point. And very few people can tell you what we're actually there for. And usually, it's just you know when you see in the paper, people are saying, "Well, now the Russians are paying bounds. Bounds, okay, like maybe like or the Taliban did this or they did it. Okay, that doesn't really get to the issue of why we're there. Right. Uh, so a lot of American foreign policy is actually like this. So there's there's not much attention from the general public just because it doesn't matter all that much. And there's a lot of attention for some people who have vested interests in the outcome of foreign policy. This is where you get to uh, lobbying and interest groups. But I would say we're, at, we're sort of at the part of the spectrum where we are so big and we're so powerful and we've been doing for so much for so long. We have these sort of habits of empire uh, that we're very, very far away from the unitary actor model. I would argue that this is why a lot of American policy doesn't really make a lot of sense. And I know that one I'm, I'm going to use slightly more sensational rhetoric than I usually do, but like the holy grail of foreign policy or of IR theory is is trying to unite these large scale deterministic institutional models with a lot of the behavioral economics and, and psychological research that's gone over on in the last 30 to 40 years. Do you feel like we're at least moving in the direction where we're, we're getting closer to that? Uh, you mean getting closer to sort of a psychological understanding of foreign policy? Right. Yeah. My, I mean, my dissertation was on political psychology and foreign policy preferences. Uh, I've, it's, you know, I've, I've, that's my thinking has developed though. It's, I think it's true. I think it's true that there's psychological forces that are driving people, you know, the people are not being driven by some kind of uh, uh, logic of, uh, you know, strategic logic. And we can say the same thing. We could say the same thing about leaders. The, the, the point is that when you're studying that at the level of public opinion, it's very easy to manipulate. So if most people don't know much and are not paying much attention, whatever the buttons are, you know, you can you can push them. And then, you know, partisanship and other things, media framing and other things take over. And I mean, another way to look at it, if you're and if you're thinking about psychology at the level of leaders, that's valuable. A lot of the uh, a lot of historical studies are really fun to look at because, you know, you look at you know, what Hitler, or what FDR was doing from sort of a psychological perspective, which because when you study humans, you have to study them from a psychological perspective, right? right? They're humans. They're not, uh, you know, the, uh, economics has its rational actor model and it's close enough. But I think even an economist would say if you're getting down to the individual level and it's an individual making a decision, psychology becomes much more useful. But there's also the question of 
you know, people are going to have a certain psychology. They're going to look at the world a certain way. And my interest has been sort of moving towards the question of why some people achieve power and others don't. So there's some people who hate war, who, you know, hate all, you know, uh, any kind of violence who would just are naturally pacific. Some people are strategic Machiavellian. Some people are prone towards violence. And there's such a wide distribution in the pop in the population, right? So you're you're answering one question when you're saying, what was this leader thinking at this specific time? But it's a different question as to why this leader came to power and was in the position to make uh, to make the decisions that he did. You understand? So uh, these are different questions, and psychology is useful. It just it just sort of depends on where where you're applying it at the mass level, at the individual level, and whether you're considering these structural forces that raise some people up and prevent other people from gaining power. So let's take some of those ideas and apply them to, our, you know, arguably one of, if not the biggest foreign policy consideration for the United States in the next couple of decades, which is China. And, you know, when we chatted before, you had mentioned this idea of the Thucydides trap, which is something we've definitely talked about before on our show. And just as a brief recap for listeners, it's it's the idea that a rising power threatens another one and inevitably that leads to war as happened between Sparta and Athens back in the Peloponnesian War. And there, I, I've made distinctions on our podcast before, such as aspects of geography, like there's a big ocean between us that didn't exist between Sparta and Athens. But I, I know that you mentioned that you have some thoughts on the Thucydides trap, which kind of implies that we're definitely going to go to World War III is the argument that, that some people make. But if agents have more choices and determinism should be viewed with at least a certain degree of skepticism, right? Because no model is perfect. How do you think about U.S.-China relations from the framework of that of of the Thucydides trap? Well, it's sort of—I mean, it's sort of a mess. So the the idea, the the, the literature is trying to justify this. So there's this idea that when you have a rising power and there's a, it's gonna and there's it's being it's challenging an established power. There's a good chance they're gonna end up a war. Nobody says it's guaranteed, but uh, right. I. Um, I have a report coming out soon uh, that's going to be about uh, the most famous, the most famous uh, manifestation of the Thucydides, Thucydides trap, which is uh, from Graham Allison, who was a uh, dean of the, uh, I think, public policy school uh, or the School of Government at Harvard, a Clinton era official. So influential guy. He wrote a book called The uh, Destined for War uh, in 2017. And his idea is you t- he went the last 500 years and he said he found or 16 cases of when an established power was challenged by a rising power in the last 500 years. And of these 12 ended up in war. So nobody says uh, guaranteed war. But what, but what Allison says is 12 out of 16 cases, 75%, pretty big odds, right? If, if there's a 75% chance that the US and China go to war, uh, that's serious. It's something we should take seriously. And it's got a lot of fans within the government, like McMaster and uh, Mattis. They all, they, all, they all cite this stuff uh, when they talk about the rise of China. If you look closely at the data, though, I mean, it's really it's really problematic. So first of all, uh, he doesn't really define what his terms are. So when you say a rising power is meeting an established power, he actually says these things are defined as they are conventionally defined. Uh, so he has a website where he explains his methodology. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry, it wouldn't pass muster in my intro to intro to stats or intro to IR mm. course. Uh, it's these are just conventional defined. So what does that mean? If uh, 20% shrinkage in GDP within 10 years, does that count as uh, a rapid rise relative to another? You know, we don't know. He doesn't, he doesn't tell us. Uh, and so he has these, um, you know, these cases and you don't know why he includes some cases and some not. So he has a website. Now you can go to the city's trap project 
website. And he's got all these uh, cases that people say he should include. And he's saying he's considering them, adding them to the database. There's no methodology to determine whether they belong or they don't. Uh, you know, there's more. There's a more fundamental question of whether what happened 500 years ago uh, has any relevance to what's going to happen today. Right. So you know, there's the idea in IR that nuclear weapons have just changed everything. Right. Nuclear weapons have made war between great powers unthinkable uh, because it's just so irrational now. It'll just destroy all sides. So you know, all pretty much all of his cases are before nuclear weapons. Uh, there's one that's. There's one that's after, but there's a few that are after, but their inclusion is problematic. I, people can go to the report if, if they're interested. Uh, so, you know, the, the, all this stuff is happening before nuclear weapons. It's happening before, you know, a thousand other things like the Industrial Revolution, uh, existence of mass media, uh, mass communication, satellite imagery, all these things that have changed in the last 500 years. And going back to what I said about a field sort of needing to justify itself. So they need the rational, IR needs sort of the rational actor model to be able to say we're different from normal Amer- study of American politics. Uh, they also need this historical continuity, right? They also need the idea that studying Athens and Sparta or studying you know, the French and Indian War or whatever has something to tell us about great power relations in 2020. Maybe they do, but it, it's, uh, it, it's an assumption that doesn't get questioned enough. Because if I was going to tell you uh, what Amer- what's America's tax policy, you know, what, what's going to be... Um, you know, what's America's tax policy like? How does it compare to other kinds of uh, uh, tax regimes? You wouldn't go back a thousand years or two thousand years. Right. You would say the world is too different. Maybe study other countries, maybe study the last five, 10 years, look at what Europe or Japan are doing. Uh, but you wouldn't just say, OK, whatever, you know, Julius Caesar did for taxation has something to tell us about <laughs> taxation, right? It's a very strange thing, but we do do this in IR. And I've always questioned, I think a lot of IR people are actually like, they want to be historians, so they really like history, and they want to, they want to do history. Uh, I had a, one of my advisors, a great guy at a UCLA, was named uh, Mark Trachtenberg, and he actually came from the history department. He was a, he was a historian first, and then went over to the IR department, and you know he was uh, uh, he would he would say that the history department had actually gotten so he studied the Cold War, and he would say the history department basically got taken over by identity politics, so they're not interested in who studied either the Cold War anymore. So he was sort of he became sort of a refugee. And he went into international relations, but he had no trade in international relations. He would just pick up an international relations book, say, well, this is the theory. Okay, I have, I have knowledge about the history of the Cold War. I'm going to go back and see if this actually happened you know, during the Nixon administration or whatever. And so he was a little bit more explicit about it than most people. But a lot of these books, if you go to the you know, interesting IR books, like John Mersheimer's mm-hmm. The Tragedy of Great Power Politics, they're basically history books you know, with sort of a, with a theory, a sort of an excuse to do history, right? <laughs> so, so, so it's, it's interesting because history, they don't actually do history in history departments anymore. So it needs to be done somewhere. The people who do, do have training in historians, I mean, I'm sorry to say the people who do have training as historians tend to do better history than our people. So sometimes it's not the best history in the world. And then if you're just starting with a theory and then like looking for history, that's sort of like the wrong way to go about it. I mean, you have to start with some theory before you delve into the historical literature. But, it, you know, if you, if you see history as sort of a, uh, an auxiliary to your broader theoretical argument, that can lead you, you know, in a wrong path for, uh, for doing history. Um, but, yeah, I mean, this is, this is the assumption that, that Graham Allison makes, right? It goes back 500 years. We can, we can say that there's, uh, there's this relationship and it's statistically based. And now we have to be 
all very worried about the rise in China. There's a 75% chance if we, if we listen to history that we're going to go to war with them. And this is just, this is, I think, just fallacious reasoning. The, oh man, I, it's so funny as reconsider is all about. So, so our, our whole shtick uh, at reconsider is about upending the just conventional way that you've thought about things all your life, or at least recently, uh, often we say, you know, you probably think you've, you've thought this way all your life, but it turns out you haven't. Uh, it turns out you just thought about it recently and decided that, uh, you know, d- decided that it's been a deep conviction of yours forever. Uh, and, and I'm actually, I'm having a bit of a crisis live right now. So, uh, so dear, dear considerate listeners, you get to see me reconsidering some stuff that I've invested <laughs> a lot of time into believing right now. I, I, um, I, <laughs> I think, you know, uh, what's interesting, Richard is, is, uh, you know, you're, you clearly have a, yeah, you, you clearly are, are seeing a lot of kind of personality or how to wouldn't call it personality bias but like bias in the actors uh in the academic departments of political science and yeah. and seeing that bias as a root of a lot of conclusions that they draw and what i what i want to do is what i'm going to do is like rather than uh rather than like turn this into a live debate uh because i i'd get steamrolled anyway but but I thought, we, I thought we were on the same page, Eric. I thought you I thought you were doubtful about uh, the, the sort of the conventional way of doing IR. I had questions, but I also wrote this bomb thesis called uh, generalizing power transitions as. Oh, you don't want to throw away your thesis. Is that it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to set it on fire. Yeah, no, it's called generalizing power transitions as a cause of war. And I had these 32 metrics and they were all in this like super sophisticated oh, okay. model and <laughs> was, uh and it had yeah. this like nice curve to it where like everything low on the scale was unlikely to go to war and everything high on the scale was super likely to go to war and i was like yeah. ah, i've nailed it right there's a there we can we could put we could plug in the model and predict whether countries are going to go to war it's deterministic the fate is sealed you know all that stuff so um with a few exceptions yeah, you know you with a few outliers that you have to throw out what was that <laughs> You guys could have Nicholas Nassim Taliban. He'll he'll cut your head off for that stuff. Yeah, exactly. He'll go crazy hearing that. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so what I what I want to do with this, what I want to do with this show is is like I mean I just want to take a breath and I, I want to like keep exploring this new way of looking at things. In part because, and I'm I'm doing some meta commentary in part for our listeners, um, in part because Xander and I are fundamentally biased towards realism. Right. So when we talk about Mm -hmm. foreign policy, a lot of those assumptions are baked in. So, dear listeners, what we're going to do is we're going to let Richard just ride roughshod over everything we've been talking to you about over the past five years (laughs) and let you decide what you want to do. Ready? Go. Okay. so um, another question for you is, you know, we've we've asked this from different perspectives, but um, territorial aggrandizement. Right. So what we're one of the things we're curious about is, of course, you know, we mentioned that uh, great powers tend not or, you know, are are not going to war since nuclear weapons have been developed for pretty obvious reasons, which is great. Um, but basically, with the exception of like, you know, and, well, for a while, essentially since uh, what was it? Um, uh, the Gulf War, in which the United States like curb stomped, you know, Saddam. This is back in the early 90s, not not Gulf War II, of course. Uh, curb stomped Saddam and said, no, 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 you don't get to just go take over Kuwait. We don't do that anymore. 
Uh, everyone said, well, okay, I guess we'll take whatever borders we have right now, even though they're all effed up. And, uh, you know, and then it's, and then territorial aggrandizement stopped for a long time. Um, uh, but it seems to be, you know, making a comeback kind of like, uh, you know, like the, the sixties hippie look is doing over here in California. And, uh, you know, Russia was like, you know, Russia decided to take Crimea and is kind of sort of taking over parts of Eastern Ukraine. And Turkey is kind of sort of taking over parts of Northern Syria and Syria might dissolve and there might be a run at that. So um, what I'm wondering is, uh, has there been a trend or like just a change in politics or a change in you know, the psychology of the modern man that has made territorial aggrandizement or, you know, or just like, you know, taking over people's turf less interesting or economic reasons? Um, or is it, is it just that there's, you know, is it just that there's like too much risk of great powers getting involved? And then, you know, kind of like a little bit like World War One, where like, you know, Austria, like, you know, a Serbian guy shoots an Austrian guy. So now you as a pole are fighting in, you know, are fighting in France and you're like, how did this happen? Um, et cetera. So uh, I want to get your take on that. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's two related questions. There's the, the decline of war and the decline of territorial aggrandizement and they're related, right? So whether there's been a decline in territory, uh, territorial, territorial, uh, uh, you know, acquisition by force. Absolutely. Uh, there's a paper by uh, Mark Zacker, um, that's a classic paper on this, Zacher, Z-A-C-H-E-R, uh, where he shows this and he shows that the number of, uh, the number of wars that are fought over territory are going down. Uh, territory does not change hands, even when people do fight wars. Uh, the, there's a book called The Internationals by Anna Hathaway and uh, Scott Shapiro, which traces it actually to the Kellogg-Briand Pact, which is often uh, mocked, the 1920s yeah. pact that said can outlaw, outlaw war. Uh, you know, soon before the Second World War, uh, but they say that most uh, most of the territorial acquisitions after that point were reversed uh, after World War II. Uh, so that you know, this is true. Uh, Nineteen. So the last was Zacher said that nineteen seventy five was the last case of one state conquering another by force. That was uh, North Vietnam swallowing South Vietnam, uh, and then. And then nothing, and then no, no t- successful territorial conquest, right? Saddam tried to annex Kuwait, but he was pushed back. Um, there hasn't been a successful territorial conquest until uh, Crimea, um, and even that is not uh, recognized by the vast majority of the world's countries. Uh, so you have, you know, this one case over uh, thirty-seven years, right? Where it's been, where before it was just accepted, you'd fight a war, you'd gain more territory. And everyone, everyone would sort of move on. Even the Russia stuff, the other stuff, you know, you realize it doesn't, you notice it doesn't actually annex Eastern Ukraine. It maybe supports rebels there. Um, it messes around, but, uh, you know, those, they try to actually do secessionist movement there and secessionist movements have happened. So, right. but not, not territorial conquest, just very, very rare, few and far between. And it's important that we don't get, um, you know, we don't exaggerate any particular uh, event and look at more long-term trends. So you'll, op- you'll often see an article the world is getting more dangerous. You know, I, I talked about IR people, but I, people who write about international affairs are, are probably worse than this because they don't have the historical perspective. So, uh, you know, Fukuyama said the end of history uh, after, after the Cold War. And basically every two or three years after that, someone said 
the end of the end of history, right? right. They would come along and they say, oh, something <laughs> happened in the world. Like somebody, there was a terrorist attack. Somebody, somebody fought a war. And, and that's, that's how Fukuyama said, didn't literally say nothing's ever going to happen yeah. again. <laughs> It was, it was more along the line. Now, I, I do think Fukuyama, there's been challenges to Fukuyama in the, in the last few years, but, the, the, but the, it's not for the reason. Like when people say, oh, 9-11 showed that, uh, you know, Fukuyama was wrong. Like, no, gotcha. 9-11. What's that? I was just thinking like, like 9-11, gotcha, Fukuyama. <laughs> just, yeah, any terrorist attack, right, yeah. And so, there, and, and, and yeah, but that doesn't, I mean, the, his idea was that there's no general uh, challenge to, Democratic capitalism. Every state in the future is going to be basically either moving towards democratic, not every state, but, you know, the general trend is going to be toward democratic capitalism. Now, you had this terrorist attack and you had Islamism pop up. Islamism was, was maybe a threat to the Middle East. It wasn't going to be a long term challenger to democratic capitalism, right? That wasn't going to be like Europe and China. We're not going to go in that direction. Um, and so, yeah, I, 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 I don't think we've seen much of a return to territorial aggrandizement. A lot of the bloodiest stuff in the last few years have been civil wars. Civil wars have, you know, um, have been uh, more bloody recently than interstate wars, which have all but ceased to exist. And a lot of those, you know, the Syrian civil war in particular has been particularly bloody. But there's different questions. I think there are under different underlying causes of interstate war and civil war. In a way that, in the way that, in a way, they're sort of uh, similar in that I think that they involve. Uh, uncertainty. So when you sort of draw these arbitrary lines and you say, these are the world's borders, and as soon as people accept them, you uh, are less likely to fight over them. It's just sort of, it becomes a general agreement. So when you've seen a lot of interstate wars in the post-war period, uh, or historically, it's been in the breakdown of empires. So after colonialism ended, a lot of the, there was a lot of uh, wars as countries were sort of, you know, setting where their borders were going to be. Uh, this uh, and then when you you know once the borders are settled and the sort of international community comes to accept it, you have that um, you know you have sort of that certainty and you have that mutual respect for borders. Now I think we're seeing a lot of civil wars is because there's been a lot of uh, there's been a, you know, there's just a lot of weak states. So a lot of countries that before would have just had no states or they would have been colonized uh, are now trying to make a go of it. Some of them have been destabilized by outside forces. And there's no certainty over, you know, who's the who's the most powerful, who's got the monopoly on force. Nobody has it in, say, Libya right now, and then to a lesser extent, Syria and Iraq. And so there's so civil wars are still a major problem. Uh, interstate wars and territorial conquest, uh, not so much. Um, and yeah, I mean, how, how much this is, you know, sort of a economic thing, how much of this is selection of leaders? It, it's, it's an inter- it's an interesting question. I do. I do have thoughts. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, it's just such a broad question. I do recommend people read Steven Pinker's book. It's, it's not a, it's not a, it's not perfect, uh, better angels of our nature. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I think the trends are at least undoubtable. And then you, you might, you know, quibble with what sort of reasoning of their, of why, why they've gone in that direction. Uh, yeah, it's an it's an interesting thing, Richard. The guy who actually introduced us, Pablo, we've talked about this book before, uh, Stephen Pinker's book, Better Angels. And for me, it was one of the most compelling books I've ever read um, because of how he presents really a wide variety of information that he's collected to make his point. It's a big book. It's like 800 pages or something like that. And I highly recommend it. Yeah. Um, graphs, if you, if you don't have time to read the whole 800 pages, the graphs are useful in themselves. Yes. The graphs make, yeah. The graphs are fantastic, and I will put some links up to some of those snapshots on uh, on the show notes here. But the basic argument is that violence has declined over time per capita. 
And, you know, because the contention from a lot of people for that was the 20th century was the most violent in human history in terms of absolute numbers, which is true. But as a percentage of people alive at the time, we're still decreasing. And, you know, in the, the ancient argument between Hobbes and Rousseau, where Hobbes said some form of centralized government with a monopoly on violence is actually good in the long run. And Rousseau said we're all noble savages. Uh, the evidence strongly favors Hobbes. Uh, Pablo strongly disagrees with that thesis. And I've, I've had conversations with him about this over beer. So that's, it's, it's inter- interesting to hear that again. But one thing about Pinker's book that I, that I think is a fair caveat that he offers is that history is not a straight march forward, right? It's a pendulum that can swing both ways. And, you know, you see all of the instability going on in the world and in the U.S. this year. And it's, uh, I, I understand the, why it's difficult to be optimistic. Even I'm not particularly optimistic right now. And I, I often describe myself as a closet optimist when it comes to like human progress. So mm-hmm. love that book. Let me, yeah. And I, I, I'm a fan of that book too. Let me tell you the, one of the better arguments uh, against it. If what I think is the strongest one is a uh, deceived Nicholas Taleb, where he talks about the, you know, so Pinker's uh, data is about showing what modern wars kill versus what wars killed in the ancient past. And the question is, how good is the data from you know the past, from 300, 500 years ago? If you actually look at how the sausage is made, you look at historians and sort of how they come to the conclusion that you know 10 million people died or 100,000 people died, it's really, really flimsy. Uh, Talib says that there's an incentive to exaggerate your sort of conquests, and there's an exaggerate also exa- there's a, a, an incentive for both the winners and the losers of wars to exaggerate. So the winners want to say, we did all this, you know, stuff we conquered, we were, you know, so tough. And the losers want to say, you know, we put up a great fight and, you know, we, we didn't just go, go quietly. So he thinks the numbers from the past might be exaggerated as far as how many people died. That, you know, there's something, there's something, there could be something to that. The, uh, you know, the, the stronger, I, I think what's stronger evidence of moral sort of progress is more is more the qualitative stuff right rather than quantitative you know we just don't have slavery anymore right and you have these you know, stupid people in academia who say oh we have markets so therefore we still have slavery. you know it's just very very stupid stuff uh, you have gone to ucla yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow god i didn't realize this episode would be a roast <laughs> did you go to ucla too or you, you said i went to ucla um, my, I have not, but my girlfriend's brother just got a PhD in history from UCLA. So I'm familiar oh, with how this it, it's no, it's no particular can thing I, about I UCLA. It, they're, they're all, they're all like this now. Can I offer you money to do this thing for me? Why? Yes, you could. Oh my God. That's literally slavery. <laughs> 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 all right. Yeah. Whew, sorry. Yeah. I forgot I the actual question. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. So if, if you don't, if you reject that that argument, right, the qualitative stuff on the decline of slavery, you know, women's rights, greater tolerance, greater tolerance, all that, you know, I think for most people is very compelling. So we've talked a lot about international theory so far in this episode, and I want to turn towards U.S. domestic politics. Last year, you wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal, which uh, we'll link on the show notes, and uh, you wrote the following. Popular attention can drive career advancement in academia. The media's desire to delegitimize the 2016 election has created an extremely high demand for questionable work that can confirm reporters' prejudices under the guise of science. 
By empowering foreign governments and spreading distrust in U.S. institutions, such shoddy reporting is likely to do a lot more damage. Now, with about a year passing since you wrote that article, I want to ask, do you think we've been seeing a lot of this shoddy reporting masquerading as more rigorous science? And if so, can you think of an example? Uh, yeah, so that, that article in particular was about rushing trolls on Twitter tw- tilting the election towards Donald Trump. And, uh, you know, I go into the methods a little bit on the Wall Street Journal, even just looking at the uh, not having to do any uh, additional work, just looking at the um, uh, just looking at the uh, uh, sort of the appendix of the article that NBC News and all these places were citing discredits discredits the work. The you know, the, the so everything having to do with sort of Russian interference, they really, really hate the the fact that Trump won, right? This drives the media absolutely crazy. And it becomes everything from the electoral college is illegitimate. I mean, the rules were always electoral college. You know, you don't change the rules, you know, after after you lose. I have always thought that this was just just weak stuff, you know, uh, stuff from the electoral college towards the Republicans are stealing the election because they're doing, uh, they want voter ID. Look, I'll, I, I think there are very few countries in the world that don't have voter ID, right? It's seen as some kind of, you know, racist plot by the Republicans to, you know, foreign interference. So anything with Russians, anything that will uh, sort of discredit Trump is there. My favorite example, though, is they were trying to say right-wing terrorism was a bigger threat than Islamic terrorism. And they said, if you look at the dates from September 12, 2001 <laughs> to the day before the Fort Hood, uh, not the Fort Hood, the uh, who was that guy who shot up the gay club? The um, Oh, yeah. Uh, the Orlando. OK, so if you look at that between those dates, there was more people killed by right wing terrorism than Islamic terrorism. So you just you just you bookmarked like the two two big, uh, t- big kinds of Islamic terrorist attack. And you said right wing terrorism. Uh, was you know killed a lot more people. It wasn't even a lot, but you know it was like dozens. It wasn't like something on the level of nine eleven. Uh, you'll see the same stuff with Antifa. You know you can imagine that if uh, if you had that chop, if you had you know right wing militias taking over part of an Amer- major American cities, you know that that wouldn't have been allowed to stand for five minutes. The media would have been you know calling for for the troops to come in rather than calling it fascism when you you know send troops to keep order. So it, it's it's a, it's everything. I mean I'm not like a person who's just you know going to say right wing talking points. I think that. A lot of right-wing foreign policy for America has been has been harmful, you know, and I, I think that a lot of the Democrats have a lot of better ideas on most of these things, at least certain Democrats. But the the media bias is really over the top, and I think you just have to correct for that bias whenever you're reading anything, you know, in NBC, in New York Times, Washington Post. It's it's always been there, but it, it, the last few years, you know, there's sort of been this radicalization and just less interest in truth as time goes on. So let's actually dig into that a little bit more. Right now we have, you know, right now we have a, a president whose foreign policy is at least, you know, on paper or on Twitter, I guess. I don't know if it's on paper, but at least on Twitter is about bringing the troops home, right? We've got these, you know, we've got these foreign wars that are totally not necessary, not helpful. Um, you know, everything from Afghanistan to Iraq to Syria where we're, you know, leaving blood in the sand. And what are we getting for it? And frankly, what is everyone else getting for it? And, um, you know, if kind of the reading I've done in in particular around the Syria withdrawal was that the president was actually kind of like fighting his own uh, advisors on this or like kind of the the established military thinkers who said, oh, we have to stay there because we'll be abandoning our allies. And you know, and, and at some point he kind of got fed up with it and, and didn't end around and publicly just to, you know, he couldn't get people on board. 
So he publicly declared, we're withdrawing from Syria. Uh, you know, too bad. I said it out loud. So it's happening. So make it happen. Now, we still have troops in all those countries. Mm. There seems to also be, you know, there seems to also sometimes be an impulse of uh, lashing out. For example, the Soleimani airstrike, you know, was was provocative and perhaps dangerous. And so I think that, you know, I think, you know, look, I tend to run in in circles that are more left wing as well. So um, I think the the story that we get about the president's foreign policy is that it's somewhat erratic, you know, probably, you know, certainly we we hear rumors from inside the White House that he doesn't really pay attention to the uh, national security briefing. What I'm wondering is, is Trump a great example of, you know, look, uh, uh, foreign policy can just be a very personal thing and, and change with the wind. Um, is it an example of, look, this is just a very fundamentally different strategy from, from Obama's and Bush's, which were, you know, I, I'll make the case like largely the same foreign policy. I might, I might be one of the few people who thinks that. And, and it's just a different strategy uh, and it's determined by politics or, or by domestic politics. Like Americans are tired of Bush Obama style endless warfare um, and they just want people to troops to come home. And, and that psychological impulse, you know, flowed up through Trump's victory. Um, whereas, of course, you know, they probably thought Clinton would just continue Obama's foreign policy, et cetera. Um, or is or uh, and you probably won't make this case, but or is there like a national security interest or, or like a more fundamental interest of the United States to not get involved in foreign wars. You know, I think one interesting thing about the, and I'll, I'll say this and then let you go, about the Trump administration is he's the, with the exception of the Soleimani airstrike, which like almost got us into a fight with, or sorry, not almost could have gotten us into a fight with Iran. Almost is definitely the wrong word, but uh, you know, but, but he's like the first president in a very, very long time who hasn't picked a new fight. Um, who hasn't like gotten us involved in somewhere new that we weren't before. And uh, so what do you, you know, I guess, what do you see as, as the driver of that, um, you know, of that foreign policy that we've seen over the last three and a half years? Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast. And this episode is brought to you by Kleenex ultra soft tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex ultra soft tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin for this allergy. Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, so I mean, every, every one of these presidents is absolutely, you know, fascinating in their own way and that they're so different. So the Trump, you know, when he ran in 2016, uh, he was saying things that a lot of people weren't saying. He was saying the Iraq war was stupid, which was still pretty unthinkable for a for a Republican. Uh, he was saying, you know, we need to get out of these wars. He said, you know, why do we need to be in Syria? I, we don't need to overthrow the Assad government. He would say, I'm going to talk to North Korea. I'm going to talk to, uh, 
you know, the lead, uh, he might have said, I'm going to talk to Iran. I'm not sure. Uh, but it was something, you know, fundamentally different. And a lot of these national security types went, you know, went crazy about it. Uh, and they're still, you know, writing open letters about how, how Trump can't win re-election. So in, in execution, it's been difficult because he's been, he's, uh, he's appointed a lot of, I would say, some of the worst people in Washington, if, if you have that perspective. So John Bolton, he, you know, he tweets, I fired John Bolton. You know, he was the worst ever. Like, yeah, like you hired him, right? Everyone knew what John Bolton was, uh, you know, for the for decades now. Mike Pompeo, uh, Mark Esper, all the, all these guys are, are are hawks to one degree or another. What you've seen is, you know, so Trump will say, you know, I want to I want to pull troops out, and a lot of times, what you'll see is you'll see sort of sabotage. Uh, you'll see uh, leaks to the media about how this will be terrible. This was this happened after Trump's uh, famous phone call with Erdogan, where he said. Uh, we're going to pull out of uh, we're going to pull out of Syria. There was all these leaks that you know this can't happen. This is going to destroy the country. And then he switched like 180 degrees. I'm going to sanction Turkey. You know if they go into Syria after telling uh, Erdogan that you know that was okay. So there's a lot of this. There's a lot of he has these instincts, but then he's also a politician, and the people around him also have influence over him. And so he hires these people who you know who want an American presence abroad, and, and the foreign policy amounts to not much in the way of retrenchment. Uh, they there's a, there was a story the other day that they're going to pull um, uh, a good chunk of the troops out of Iraq, something like a third of the troops of, out of Iraq. But if they do that, then they're going to return to 2015 levels, right? So before Trump came into office, you're just going you're just going back where you started. Uh, same thing with Afghanistan. Uh, you're going to end up uh, probably around the same where you were when Trump came into office. In the end, there was no there was no great pullback. Now, uh, to his credit, he didn't do anything as crazy as go into Iraq, right? And he didn't do anything as crazy as Libya, which people don't talk m- uh, as much about, which did. Obama did and was a disaster. So you do have to give Trump credit for that. You do have to give him credit for, I think, uh, the the defeat of ISIS. Uh, this is another one of these examples where it's sort of uh, media prejudice. They said Trump comes into office because he's tough on, you know, he wants fewer immigrants from the Middle East. This is going to inflame the Muslim world. And you need to be different. You need to be deferential to allies and this and that. And his theory was, um, you know, you just bomb them. You just keep bombing them and you, you support the militias on the ground. And then and then you beat them. And, and that was actually correct now. It had a cost in human rights, and if you care about human rights abroad, uh, you you can see why other presidents might not like that. Uh, you know the the um, uh, the drone attacks and the bombings, the civilian casualties; those things have gone up. The human toll of the sanctions have been pretty; pre- they've been pretty hard. They've hit Venezuela pretty hard. Uh, there was one study showing that they uh, they uh, uh, had Venezuela had forty thousand excess deaths in one year, and that's that was attributed to American sanctions. Uh, Iran, their economy collapsed uh, thanks to the uh, American sanctions, even though by all agreement they were sticking to the uh, to the Iranian nuclear deal. If you're interested in the sanctions issue, I have a report for the Cato Institute uh, you guys can link to. Um, so but from the perspective of uh, no new wars and from the perspective of um, not many American casualties, you could say Trump is uh, foreign policy has been a success. If you want from a perspective of if you wanted him to really cut back military spending, which he doesn't, he he increases military spending and he and he brags about it, or about you know global human rights and um, issues like that, then you might take a more skeptical view. So I mean, it's a uh, these are value questions, but I'm just sort of giving you the uh, how to think about them given the actual results. Yeah, and 
And the only quick follow-up I want to have is, do you, do you see, because I, I, I know we talked about this a little bit early on in the hypothetical, and I wanted to, I wanted to bring it home. Do you see, did you see this as like, you know, the American people probably like more, less normative and more explanatory. Do you see this as like the American people are just like sick of endless war and neither of the conventional Republicans or Democrats are doing anything about it, right? Like Obama, you know, like, like kind of certainly his brand was like very peace loving and he got the Nobel Peace Prize and such. And then he got us into a bunch of new wars and kept the old ones going. And people said, you know, what, F it. We're going for this like brand new crazy guy. Uh, who who's actually going to get us out of these wars that we've been trying for a long time? Can I, defend, can I defend Obama for a second after saying the Libya thing was just a big disaster? Uh, uh, yeah, I'm I'm yeah I'm sorry I'm being a I'm being a little pejorative and I realize that that uh, that is going on the record so uh, or not pejorative but but uh, jocular so yes please go ahead. <laughs> No, well, uh, the uh, Obama was. I remember the politics of that time. And people say, well, Obama kept fighting wars in the Senate. And I remember that the Republicans controlled the House after 2010. Mm -hmm. And every step he tried to take away from more warmongering, the Republicans just went crazy. Mm -hmm. And the president is normally left wing on foreign policy issues is actually pretty right wing. Yeah. So they this is like it was like the one thing they would criticize Obama on for, you know, apologizing for America or like trying to talk to the Iranians or not doing enough in Libya. The Republicans, you know, they were saying do more in Libya. I mean, this this uh, or they were saying, you know, you, they like or if they're doing this cowardly thing where they won't say we should go to war, but they say he needs to lead from the front instead of leading from behind. Like just question his manhood. Just do this. These stupid things. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, even even Trump, there's a video of him saying Obama needs to do more in Libya. Right later and later, he said Libya was a huge disaster. So I really do put a lot of blame on the Republicans mm. and the generals around Obama, too. They really pressured him into escalating in Afghanistan. And all the indications are he really didn't want to. Uh, Bob Woodward's uh, book on this, Ben Rhodes talks about this, although he's self-interested. But Bob Woodward is a, uh, you know, a more neutral reporter. And he, he tells the story about how uh, you know, they would just leak things, these guys like Petraeus and McChrystal, just to keep the Afghanistan war going. That was just their main priority. Obama's second term was actually more more dovish. Uh, that's mm -hmm. when you got the Iranian nuclear deal. After the Libya disaster, you didn't get any new wars. The Syria involvement was a disaster, uh, too. But he did it. He everyone else basically in Washington wanted to go further than he did. Uh, so, you know, we have to understand not only the politicians and what they're thinking, the president on top, but sort of these, you know, brought the broader sociology of it. And the Republicans, when they were out of power, they just saw foreign policy as a way to just sort of beat the Democratic president over the head with. And I think that if Biden wins this election, uh, the, you know, you'll probably see that again. I, they don't really have foreign policy. I mean, a lot of people don't. Right. A lot of people care about foreign policy, a lot, a lot less than they care about other things. Uh, so they'll use it. Um, They'll use it uh, sort of strategically for domestic political reasons, like the stuff about Russia, like if try have, uh, you know, have um, Democrats, have liberals ever cared about being weak on Russia? No, but it's a way to beat up Trump now. And I think that's right. the reason we often hawkish policies, just because, you know, whoever is out of power says, you know, you need to be tougher, right, as a way to question, you know, the manhood or the competence, who's ever in office. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You, you look at these guys and you look at their psychologies and and their ideologies, and that's there. I recommend people um, interested in Obama can go read his, uh, on his way out of office, he did an interview with Jeffrey Goldberg at The Atlantic, and he's a little bit more unfiltered. And I think in that interview, you're getting sort of the true Obama and what he really believes as he's leaving office. And then, you know, Trump is just sort of, you know, is easier to 
easier to read. You know, what you see is basically yes. <laughs> and, yes. And, you know, a lot, a lot of insiders, you know, have written about uh, the process. Bolton, in his book, you know, brags about like thwarting Trump's policies. It's really, you know, the the, the hubris of these people is really incredible. Uh, so yeah, focus on individuals and also focus on uh, you know sort of the structures in there, what's called the blob in Washington that sort of pushes everything towards sort of a more militaristic direction. Cool. So I, <laughs> the blob in Washington, doesn't that sound right? <laughs> so I, I kind of want to tie it back, tie the whole conversation back to what, where we started, which was more in the foreign policy world. And we kind of came to the U.S. and we've been all the while talking about the distinctions between the individual and these larger systems. You wrote a paper about how elites in America may differ in terms of their personality traits from the rest of the population. And that was interesting to me because what you found is, according to this survey that's administered and is administered, it seems like pretty randomly, and there's reasons to believe that it was a fully, as random a sample as you can get, that politicians tend to be um, more conscientious, conscientious and more emotionally stable, but less intellectual than the rest of the American public and the rest of the masses. But there is this one passage where you sh- where you mentioned. Uh, let's see if I have it here. In Europe, it's it's sort of the other way around. The average European elite is actually rated as more intellectual than in America. And part of the reason for this discrepancy you mentioned in the paper might be due to how American media biases uh, or, or or just how American media covers politics in the U.S. Do you have any idea what aspects of media coverage? may structure incentives such that American politicians tend to rank lower on the intellectual scale than European politicians relative to the average. So you've, uh, you gave that a, you gave that a close read. So I, I appreciate that. Most, most, uh, most hosts are not, are not that, you know, are not that well read up. So, so kudos to you. Yeah. That's, I'm that's one of those good. hosts. That's not as well read up. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> so the, uh, um, so actually it's important to clarify. So when I, when I say intellect in that paper, so what I mean is openness to experience. So that that uh, so there's big five personality traits that psychologists talking about. Uh, ocean is how you remember openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, neuroticism, right? And so the first one is openness to experience. Some people call it intellect slash imagination. It's not like IQ. It's not that. It's just you know it's openness to experience. So that's like do you you know do you like to meet new people? Do you like to you know eat? Uh, you know, new kinds of foods. Do you like, you know, abstract art, stuff like that. That's, that's more, uh, that's more what we're talking about. And yeah, so the politicians, I mean, they were, um, they were lower on this trade in the United States. They were higher on extroversion and conscientious, which makes sense. You know, you have to be outgoing to be a politician. You have to be conscientious. You have to sort of, uh, uh, you know, conscientiousness is, uh, you know, getting to work on time, staying sober, <laughs> stuff like that. And then higher on emotional stability, but then, yeah, lower on this openness imagination. Now, there were some European studies which actually uh, show the opposite. And I speculate a little bit in the paper that what's going on is the American media is, is covering things in the way to sort of weed out people who've had any scandals or whatever. So in the, traditionally in France, if you've like a leader had a mistress, the stereotype is the, you know, the media just didn't care. The, the media just didn't care. It was sort of like JFK, you know, his mistress back in the day. This was the way the American media was. Uh, you know, uh, several decades ago. Um, I, I struggle to say anything about that now because the media landscape has changed uh, so much 
um, just in the last five years, just like, I mean, social media, you know, just has, has changed so much about, uh, you know, the, every, everything that when I see, um, it, it might've actually, you know, now that I think about it, made things worse because now every single thing you did, right. Uh, can be, it's easier to just uncover anything, um, you know, any unusual preference or, but at the same time, we've sort of become more tolerant as a society, right? If somebody like cheats on his wife or something, I don't think that scene is sort of a big deal as much of a big deal as it was in the past for a politician. You know, people are more shameless, uh, totally. but it's also, you know, easier to expose stuff. So it, it's hard to know how that goes. You know, it's just the results are what they are. And it's, it's, it's hard to, you know, speculate on the, the actual reasons. Well, I'm, gosh, I'm, I'm sitting here with, with all this other, all these other kind of like follow-ups that I'd, I'd love to talk with you about Richard. And maybe I need to do a little bit more of my own research for next time. But uh, I also need, got, got a boogie to a meeting. Um, and also we've promised our listeners that we're going to try and make these episodes not quite as long as we normally do and see how they like that. So I am going to, I I need to, I need to, uh, you know, cut us off short and, and curl this into a close. But but my my parting thought here is I'm I'm actually myself like really grateful for the opportunity to to have my own perspectives challenged. In particular, you know, I think it's a good opportunity for me to recognize that you know people get in all sorts of bubbles for all sorts of reasons. You know, and Xander and I love to talk about the like you know kind of just partisan like social media type bubbles right where like where what you get is ooh here's a picture of here's a, a picture of obama uh either like getting along or not getting along with with merkel and and uh, a picture of trump either not getting along or getting along with merkel and and doesn't this sum up the difference in their foreign policy really well and everyone goes like wow you know amazing and, and that that kind of bubble stuff you know I, I xander and i really try to stay out of but I recognize that, like I, you know, I've been in my own bubble where, where how, you know, just these these fundamental questions of how nations go to war or not, um, the foundations of that were never challenged. They were just reinforced over and over and over again, right? And uh, you know, and I've spent the past five years here at reconsider with that bias or that assumption or that that model unchallenged, unconsidered. Um, as as part of how I'm, you know, I'm trying to educate, uh, you know, trying to educate the the folks listening. So I hope that, you know, li- you know, dear listeners, I hope that you all really got to appreciate, you know, like Richard's like not only fresh, but obviously like very well thought out, very sophisticated perspective that, uh, you know, that that even you know, even among people who study this stuff for a very, very long time, there may be reasons that, you know, they have a fundamental bias about about how they end up looking at things. And um, I'm not going to I'm not going to say I'm a I'm a convert yet, but um, but this has been really powerful and really helpful, even for me personally. And I'm and I I'm really, really grateful for the time. Uh, so thank you, Richard. Yeah, thank you, guys. I really enjoyed it. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.